When HMAS Perth 1 left shore for the last time on 28th of February 1942, it was carrying some 681 men, made up of 671 Royal Australian Navy personnel, six Royal Australian Air Force personnel and four canteen staff. Just a few hours later, Perth was lying at the bottom of Bunton Bay, having resisted surrender despite being vastly outnumbered by the Japanese Western Invasion Fleet that it had unexpectedly encountered as it tried to make its way through the Bunton Strait. Of those 681 men, 353 were killed in battle. 328 survived the sinking ship, four of whom are known to have died ashore on Java before they could be taken prisoner. A further 106 men died in captivity, and just 218 of Perth's company made it back to Australia when the war ended. Today we're speaking to one of those who survived, and to the son of one of those who did not. Frank McGovern was an able seaman on HMAS Perth 1, and is the only one of the ship's crew still with us. Frank is now 101 years old, and the last living survivor of HMAS Perth 1. George Hatfield Jr. is the son of George Hatfield Sr., who was also a member of Perth's crew. George Jr. was born in June 1942, three months after his father went down on the Perth, meaning that he never met his dad. Both Frank and George join us here today. Thank you very much, Frank and George. George, your father was part of HMAS Perth 1's story from the very beginning. He was among those who travelled to England for the commission and the naming of what was then HMS Amphion, but became HMAS Perth 1. What can you tell us about your father's first voyage on Perth? Well, I can only refer to the diary that I've typed out, and uh, it was amazing. Sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional. That's fine. He was... um. Just go back to my father, quickly back to my father's past. He was a kid that grew up in Brunswick, didn't do much education. Um, the Depression came, he couldn't get a job, so he joined the Navy. That's the quick and the fast way about it. And then he did a few patrols around uh, Australia. Then the Perth come to going to England. Well, for a young kid, you know, a young young guy, wasn't a kid then, a young guy going over to across the world is just nothing that he ever conceived before. So... Doing the diary, typing the diary out, as I'm going from place to place, what I was doing, I was following it on Google Earth and the places that he mentioned I was looking at on Google Earth as I went bit by bit uh, and, and followed, followed his journey 75 years later. Well, tell us about some of the places that they visited. Going across there, he stopped in all the ports on the way and, he's, and he described and told you the cost of the beer or what it cost for a, for a meal and a uh, bed for the night if they wanted to stay ashore. That type of thing is just... But when he got to England, then it was another story again. And I think if you read the book, you'll see that he just see, he says, and it's amazed how a little kid from Brunswick can get to be in England. Back in those days, in uh, 39, no one travelled like that. And for him to be there, it's just amazing. And what he saw there, you know, it was also amazing to him when he mentions the party, goes in this, this hotel and the pub and there's a, people in there who doesn't know whether they're men or women. He'd never seen that before back in Australia. He said, and then he got in a taxi and he got uh, propositioned by this prostitute and he said he'd never seen that before either. So he's in a different world and he wouldn't have been there except for the war. So that was one thing. So then they commissioned the boat, spent a bit of time commissioned the boat and went to New York. Um, they got there for the World Fair. It was a 39 World Fair and they were there for a couple of weeks, I think. And I didn't, it doesn't say in the book, but they actually had a strike there. The Navy went on strike. Of course, they wanted to wear different uniforms and apparently um, they refused them to sort of go offshore or come back onshore because they were wearing the, they had to wear their whites or their blues or something rather, but they had a bit of a strike there, which isn't in the book, so I don't know much about it, but I have heard tales of it since then. So they left there and then they were on their way actually back to Sydney through the uh, canal, but that's when war broke out in '39. They spent six months in the Atlantic. They're one of the very few Australian ships actually fought in the Atlantic all the rest fought in the Pacific. So they were, that's the reason, only reason they were there because they, they were just patrolling. Yeah, so they spent a lot of time, he talks a lot about shore leaving Kingston in Jamaica and having read the diaries, what really strikes me, well, there's two things. A lot of the time he doesn't know where they are because, of course, as an able seaman, uh, sorry, as a petty officer, he he's not being... He wasn't a petty being, officer, Well, not at that stage he wasn't, but... No, um, no. But the information was very tightly held about where they were and it wasn't filtering down. So he's remarking on the geography of the places that he's going past, but they don't tell them where they actually are. Yeah, yeah. 
And the other thing I really loved is when they've got shore leave at places like um, New York or in London, he doesn't write in the diary at all. He does a lot of catching up um, after he's left because yeah, he's so busy yeah. exploring and making the most of his time on shore. I think he was a petty officer once or twice and they got demoted for coming back drunk and things like this. Oh, he actually got demoted. Oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah, realise that. once he was demoted. Well, he talks about losing his leave a lot, yeah. but I didn't realise he actually yeah, got demoted. He'd save up for his uh, mother, saving up for getting married, and uh, then he'd get blow it all one night. <laughs> That type of thing. So he's a pretty wild kind of guy, I think. Yeah, yeah it, it, it really does strike you. Um, he's really exploring these places and, as you say, recounting how much things cost and making observation about the buildings and the people. What movies were on, who was in the movies. Yeah, Spencer Trace and all the other shows that were on there. It was really, really interesting, yeah. Well, you said that you'd um, been tracking the journey on Google Earth. Did you go and watch any of the movies that he talks about? I'd seen a lot of them, yeah. I'd already seen them, yeah, so I knew what he was talking about. And it was just like... I never met him. <laughs> Sorry. But I feel I did. <laughs> Should we start here? Can I have a break for a minute? Of course you can. Did you meet him, Frank? Did you meet George's father? No. See, I joined Perth in September, I think it was, 41. I was on, previously, I was on the armed merchant cruiser for Australia. Were you? From 39. Till just after uh, early 41, you know, different ships and went on to the Perth. Was that standard? Did Perth have a core company or were there new people coming on board regularly? No, uh, there was an influx after the Med, after the Mediterranean. See, I was away all 40 on the West Australia and didn't see my brother for about 18 months, I suppose, because he joined Perth 39. So he would have been on Perth with George Hatfield Sr. Okay. Yeah. He was an engine room artificer. He was Vince, is that right? Yes, you know. I do know his name. <laughs> it's important yeah. to know people's names. And he, he was on Perth with you, is that right? That's right. We didn't see much of each other. Because I was on the upper deck, on the guns. He was down below. So the last time I saw Vince was the afternoon before we sailed up in Jakarta. There's an air raid impending. We passed one another in the passageway. I was going to the guns. He was going down to his action station and his couple of work, you know. That's on again, yeah. Name straight, okay, see you later, mate. That was it. And he's one of those who died on Perth when it was sunk. Vince was one of those killed, is that right? He didn't survive. Yeah. Getting back to um, what Frank was saying about, actually, I asked Frank, I asked everybody, did you know my father? And everyone I see from the Navy that was there, did you know my father? And I've never met anybody that actually knew him as a mate. Now, Frank said, I think he, he used to, um, he was one of the, he'd been in a few years, these young blokes there, 19-year-olds, he was giving them drills. So he was at a different level at that stage, and that's why they didn't, right. they didn't sort of get together. But I think he said one stage that he didn't. He sort of vaguely remembers my father, yeah, as a drill sort of guy. Your father, George Hatfield Sr., talks a lot in his diary about getting exercise on the deck. He loved to swim in the makeshift pool that they set up and he used to complain about how dirty it got after many people had been in it. Um, but he was also a, trained as a diver, is that right? Yeah, and then he got ear problems later on and didn't want to do mm. any more of the diving. Yeah, he, um, that was another thing about the, the diary. But I didn't read the diary. I got the diary off my mother very late in life. Um, Mum sort of lost her husband, and that's another story. But she was met this other guy a few years later, and she remarried after five years. So, uh, and I think it was virtually a marriage of convenience at one stage. She had me with no father. He had three boys and a girl, and his wife left him. So he had this family, and she had me. So I think it started off as a... I used to go dancing in the Surreyville, apparently. They were both good dancers, and that's how they met. And eventually they got married. Um, but there was a, a bit of conflict between 
your kids are my kids. And when she got married, she, she started talking about her husband because he was a white knight, you know. They just got married. He couldn't do anything wrong. And I think she must have been speaking about him like that too. So it got to the way that he was never spoken about. So as a kid, never spoken about at home about my father. Uh, but by the same token, my stepfather was a good guy. Treated me good. That, but I never had much to do about said about my father as a kid. That's just the way life goes. So talk us through the process of discovering this diary because, of course, it was clandestine. You're not supposed to keep diaries on a naval ship uh, in wartime. How did he get away with it? That's what I can't understand. He wasn't the only one. They all wrote diaries. And the, the thing that I can't understand is that they're on this ship and they're overpacked going to England, the first one. They had army people on there too. They had the ship's crew plus the purse crew. They were packed in there like sausages, living in hammocks. If you see his handwriting, he didn't have biros in those days. It would have been dipping the ink in and writing. How do they do without people knowing it? The only place he could have done it was at a table. He couldn't have done it in the hand. So this business about not being able to carry a diary, I just can't understand it. I can understand why they had it, but I can't understand. Everybody seems to have done it. A lot of people have done it. They wrote diaries. They wrote diaries in the prison of war camp, Frank. You know, there's diaries of that that people wrote, and they weren't supposed to. But that's, that's, that's where he wrote it, and with his handwriting, it's just amazing that he did write it. So he kept this diary from the time they left Sydney to go and pick up the Perth, and there's five chapters, there's I five suppose, books, five books. Five books, yeah. And then the final books um, we don't have, no, of course, no, it would have gone down, with the, down with the ship. So he kept a good diary of everything, but the final, the final one we, we just never, obviously didn't get back. So it, it ends in 1941, and at that time there was extended ship leave. He obviously spent time with your mother because you were born nine months later. Yeah, well, what happened was there was that they'd been going together from the early 30s. Um, they were always going to get married when war broke out, and they put off getting married because something might happen to him. Anyway, so then he goes to war and uh, through the Mediterranean, which you can read in the book, Comes home, the ship was wrecked. They had a lot of repairs to do, and that's when sort of Frank came on board when it was being repaired. And um, that's when they got married. Nine board, nine months later. And you have taken this incredible labour of love, reading your father's diaries and getting to know him um, through his words and through his handwriting too, I suppose. How long did it take you to type all this up? Two years. I'm not a typist. I uh, two finger. I had that for a couple of years. I had the diary. Mum gave me the diary when she was getting elderly. She said, here, here's, here's your father's things. Because that wasn't talked about when I was young. I'd never seen a whole lot of this stuff. It was put aside when she gave it to me. And I was actually looking at it, and I'd, I'd read it a couple of times, and I was over in America, and that lady over there says, why don't you type it out? I said, I can't do that. She says, have a go. I said, all right. So I, I started to try and put it into paragraphs. I said, no, this is not going to work. I'll type it as it is. And I did that. And I got up a couple of hours early every morning. I spent a couple of hours typing. And then my wife, she was a high school teacher in English, a head teacher, and um, she proved it for me. And then we were having trouble with that because at that time we weren't used to computers and she'd be proofing it and spend three or four hours proofing it and then press the wrong button and lose a lot. That's a start again. She didn't lose everything that was there, but she'd lost all the proofing. It was, it was a pretty hectic going through that. But we got there eventually, yeah, yeah. And now we have this amazing resource, this amazing witness testimony of what life was like on Perth. And, you know, having read it, it's just so, it's so special. Mm. I mean, you've really done an amazing job putting it into this beautiful book with all the pictures, um, all the photos of the places that they went to. And his voice really comes through so strongly. He's... His beautiful vocabulary, really quite sophisticated way of writing um, for someone from Brunswick who joined the Navy because of the Depression. As I say in the preface here, I, as I'm writing and typing it, sometimes I'm laughing, sometimes I'm crying. Yeah, I felt like that when I was reading it. Well, we also have you here, Frank, to also share with us what it was like on HMAS Perth. Can you tell us what it was like when you joined the ship in late 1941? Well, when I joined, 41, yeah, September, 
I met some of the fellows who had already been with me on the West Australia, about half a dozen. It was quite good, really, so I wasn't a stranger, getting to know a lot of the other fellows. So it was quite good. What was life like on board? I know at some point there were hammocks. Um, oh, yeah, hammocks, yeah. Did you sleep in hammocks? Because um, George Hatfield Sr. had this very enterprising business at one point where he established, what is it, Hatfield's horsehair hammock picking or yeah, something. Yeah, picking, yeah, yeah. Because after spending so long sleeping in the horsehair hammock, they would take on the shape of your hips. So he thought he'd make a bit of extra money fluffing them up again. Oh. Did you sleep on a horsehair hammock? No, just another, swing another hammock. Or maybe if you came back late after a run ashore, and sleep on the mess deck stool. Oh, that sounds very uncomfortable. I'm <laughs> <laughs> running about that boy. <laughs> so what, what was like life on the ship? Was the food any good? Oh, yeah, it's quite good. Very good. Got a bit monotonous at times, but yeah. we got used to it. Now, I want to ask you, Frank, and George, feel free to, to jump in, of course, if you can describe what your job on the ship was. Mainly on the guns. Short range weapons. Then I was going through for torpedoman, and that took up a bit of time. And uh, that, as a matter of fact, when I came down from the night of the action, I was making my way to the torpedo flat, as it was called, when the first torpedo hit the ship. So that was the night of the 28th of February? Yeah. Knocked me and a few other fellas. Off our feet. Wow. Tremendous explosion. And loud? Oh, lifted the ship up out of the water till it settled down again. Then a huge fireball it was open, like opening a furnace door. Swept down the upper deck, the heat. Nobody down below in the forward boiler room came out alive. Engineer commander, he died down there, and the rest. And that was the first of a number of torpedoes to that hit the ship. That was the first one, mm. starboard side, second one, starboard side, further forward, under the gun turret. Then we were out of ammunition for the main gun, and the skipper came through over the loudspeaker and was reported to. Walla, heck Walla, and he ordered a band and ship. When the third torpedo hit on the port side, and that killed a lot of fellas. Up near the bridge. I made my way down to the quarter deck, because you couldn't get through from the four inch gun deck forward. It was all blocked off from the torpedo blasts. And Went over there after. Fellow next to me said, Aren't you going over? I said, Yeah, says I kicked these off. His shoes. I regretted that. Why? Why did you regret stopping to take your shoes off? Well, the following day, on board the hot steel deck of a Jap destroyer, ah. we burnt the soles of our feet. So that was it. That's when the fourth torpedo hit our laughed. Did you put on a life jacket? I had that on. You had your life jacket on? May West. Yeah, why did they call it the May West? <laughs> the May West. Like that buxom, <laughs> buxom May West, the actress. <laughs> yeah. I understand. And you jumped overboard, is that right? Yes. Fellow the other fellow, jumped over. Finally, after... And I got tangled up. As I went down, one of the screws was still slowly turning. I thought I was down further aft. And I got dragged under the ship and I saw lit up in the phosphorus in the water a huge screw, blade, coming down. I thought, I said, oh, well, this is it. I said my last prayer. And the next minute, I was tumbled around I get a giant washing machine and thrust from that slowly turning propeller. It's incredible. 
and I got hit the surface, almost coming out completely out of the water, about 200 yards from the ship, gasping for air. <laughs> well, then I got onto the, after that, swam around a bit onto the Carly float that we helped put over. Quite a few of the fellows were on that. Then from there, onto almost sunken a lifeboat. We bailed it out and it was off one of the sunken Jap transports. Oh, it was a Japanese boat. Okay. And we got into that, trying to make sure, Java, the current was too strong. We were all exhausted, you know, by that time. Closed up at action stations for two days. Yeah, so dangerous. Rowing all night, swimming. You were covered in oil too, weren't you? No, I didn't get covered in much, that much oil. Well, a bit, but not much. Some of the fellas are. They were in a mess. Blinded, matted hair, stinking fuel oil. Horrible. So then a Jap destroyer from patrolling on the other side of the strait, on the Sumatran side, headed towards us. This was about mid-morning. We're still trying to make Java. Pretty tough. Then the destroyer, Skipper, in good English, told us, stop. What are we going to do? We had uh, Lenny Smith on the tiller. He was a warrant gunner. He said, what do you reckon, fellas? He said, oh, bugger it, we'll keep going. So we kept going. The Jap destroyer moved in. A little further, shallower water, and they trained the forward gun on it. Because that backed up the next order, which said, Stop. They're looking down the barrel of a five inch gun. Didn't have much future, so we stopped. Next order, follow us out. And they took us on board, they were okay on board. Had to strip everything off, all field clothes. They gave us a piece of cloth about that long. We thought, oh, chap underwear, string attached, like a lap lap. And that was our wardrobe for the next two months. That's all you had. And no shoes, of course. So you stayed on the Japanese destroyer for how long? Oh, all that day. And then the following day, I think it was a bit hazy. We were transferred to one of the transports. The Son Dong Maru, I remember the name. Yeah. Kept on there for a couple of weeks and took us ashore in a horrible place in West Java. You probably know about it. Sarang or Sarang. So they put you in the cinema at Sarang. That's it. With hundreds That's of other, one. hundreds of prisoners of war in terrible conditions. Dreadful. And how long did they keep you in Sarang for? I think we were there for about two months. Everybody had dysentery, malaria. I had dengue fever, I think. It was some type of fever. Fellas looked after me. I was delirious for a couple of days. It wasn't malaria. Maybe dengue. They fixed me. The good Lord. But it was a horrible... Jap officer used to come in each day just after they put us in Sarang in the cinema and just with the loincloth on we had a squat in rows on each side of the main aisle. We had a few hundred of us in there and this Jap officer had come in. We knew when he was coming in because dead silence in the cinema. You pull out a luger. What's that? A pistol. And you'd hear click, click. He'd load it. Put her on his hip. Fully rigged out, you know. Arrogant time. And march down the centre to the stage. And one fella had a couple of pieces of shrapnel in his legs, small pieces. Buzzer B. I remember the name, B. He was a signalman on deck. 
and he couldn't straighten he, or bend his leg. So he had it stuck out. The officer looked at it, walled off with his boot and kicked him right in the leg. Oh. Out he went, like a lion. As he got down near the stage, one fellow had just come back from the latrine. Didn't have time to squat down. So he just pistol whipped him across the face. Broke his jaw. We thought, ah, oh, this is not so good. That happened all the time. For the next few weeks, anyway. And after Sarang, they took you to... Up to bicycle camp in Jakarta, which was heaven after Sarang. <laughs> yes. Met up with some of the Seventh Debbie fellas. So they were friends of yours? Ah, oh, they were the diggers from... They'd been over in the Middle East, Syria and fought the Vichy French and the French Foreign Legion. And they were dumped off in Java. They were there for about a week, and Java surrendered the Dutch. That was it for them. They were good blokes. So they moved you around a lot. You were in Sarang, you were in bicycle camp, then you went to Burma, Burma is that right? And you worked as a prisoner of war in Burma on the railway? And then after that, the Japanese took you, or tried to take you to Japan. Oh, yes, on the transport Arakio Maru. <laughs> it was torpedoed by the Yanks. So, Yanks subs. So that's one of the remarkable, many remarkable things about you, Frank, is that you've been um, shipwrecked twice. And when I first met you, the first thing you said to me was that you were not unlucky, you were actually extremely lucky to have been shipwrecked twice and to have survived. It's astonishing. You were torpedoed again accidentally by the Americans who thought it was a Japanese, well, it was a Japanese ship, but it was... Oh, it was a Japanese ship, but unmarked ship. The Yanks didn't know, or the submarines didn't know there were POWs on there. There were over a thousand on there, about 1,300, I think. Only about 300 got out. So that was in September 1944? Yep. And then where did you go after that? Were you rescued by the Americans or were you taken to Japan? We were taken to Hainan, I believe, and then on a Jap frigate. They took us on board three days after we were sunk. So you spent three days in the water? How did you survive in the water for three days? Oh, we had no food and the rest of a mouthful of water. They were in lifeboats. Yeah, yeah. we are in a lifeboat. Yeah. They were rowing towards China. That's a long way. It takes too long. It takes too long. Anyway, briefly, the Japs came along in two destroyers, picked their own mob up, waved goodbye to us. We gave him a sailor's farewell. Couldn't repeat what we told him. And away they went. And... Uh, we got on board the Jap frigate, the lifeboats. It must have been four, five, nine lifeboats. Brigadier Varley, the seven Divi fellow, survivor and a VC winner from the First World War. He was with the six boat loads, went in a North, more northerly direction, our four bite loads went west towards China. We estimated we might be 300 miles China and uh, we might last eight or nine days. No food, just out full of water. But I've gone before my story. When the Japs left, the we scattered uh, all the fellas were everywhere, scattered. A lot of them went away, drifted away in the current. And we then, our boat was pretty crowded. One of the lifeboats came along. I was on the tiller of ours. The lifeboat came in bow to bow. I'm on the tiller of ours. And the fellow was steering it with his legs on the till, he said, we can take two more. And he was a mate of mine. 
and there were a few of Perth fellas on that. And one I was on was a lot of swatties, swatties we call them. So I said, uh, when he said, oh, we can take them off, I said, oh, okay, and I'll call him by name. And I got up to go to the bow and step into the lifeboat to take two. As I was going along, two fellas stood up, stepped into the boat. I might have told you this, did I? Stepped into the boat. And my mate said, oh, we've got our two, Mac. I said, okay, mate, I'll see you later. That boat was not sighted again. It headed east towards the Philippines. The following day, we heard machine gun fire and a heavy calibre, something similar to our pom-pom gun. We think they were massacred. Their boat load, mainly Perth blacks. And you'd stepped off that boat? I was going to. Only these two fellas stepped in, I would have been on. It's like a, a sliding door moment, you know? Your life could have been completely yeah. different. Another instance, yeah, up in Japan, but my mate, talking to me at the time of the heavy air raid, he was killed. I was bladder buggery and ended up with a fractured spine. While I was in the hospital, no treatment. The Japs murdered two of the fellas. Did I tell you that? They were coming with that, the leg amputated by the Jap doctors because of strap wounds. And I was lying there, paralysed from the waist down from a fractured spot. And uh, I said to the SBA, sick birth attendant, Medical orderly. He was a good bloke. I said, Oh, mate, I was there all that day and that night. Oh, I can't stand this any longer. I said, Called him by name. I said, Can you give us a shot, mate? Give me something. Get out of here. Came around and he said, Mac. He said, I'm sorry, but I haven't anything to give you. Not even an aspirin. I said, Okay, mate. Anyway, the two blokes had their legs taken off by the Jap doctor, coming good, recovering. And one day they took one fella in the operating theatre. Two hours later, wheeled him out. A little while later, the SBA came around to me. And he looked down at me. He just said, Mac, so-and-so's dead. I said, oh, he was coming good. He said, the bastards have murdered him. Cut the main artery in the groin, the femoral artery, drained all the blood out of him. And same thing with the other amputee a couple of days later. So I said to the SBA, help me up, mate. This doesn't look too good. So he stood me up, but I couldn't straighten. <laughs> Just moved my toes a little. And he agreed with me that was a good sign. Mm. We got to you later, I could shuffle a little. So you had a fractured spine, is that right? And you were worried that you were going to be murdered because um, they were taking the blood? Of I thought it was a possibility because I was useless to them. I was paralyzed. So a few days later, Jap officer came in, fully bearded and spurred, spoke English, all walking wounded, outside. And I thought, that's me. I said to the SBA, hey, mate, I'm yelling, getting out of this channel. He said, okay. So it was a Western-style building, a flagged veranda. And Jap officer, about half a dozen of us, could walk. Let us down and around to an enclosed area. High buildings all around. And there were half a dozen Jap soldiers there, rifled. And he drew with his sword scabbard, the officer, drew a line in the dirt about a yard away from the wall. 
Mine is all up there. And he's straight off about 15 yards or so. And these Swannies are soldiers. Came to attention, sloped arms. And I said to the bloke next to me, Hey, this doesn't look too bloody good, mate. He drew another line. He pointed the fellow down the end. He said, You walk. And it came to mind that it was a trial to see if we could walk. I thought, I thought I might have been, you know, only firing squad. So it was my turn to walk. I thought, how am I going to get up there? So very stiffly and like parade ground style, I got up there. I couldn't do a full about turn. I would have fallen over. That would have been curtain. So I did a quarter turn, quarter turn, and got back, sweating profusely. And I made it. So took us back to camp. That's an amazing story. Survived again. Yeah. Have you heard these stories before, George? Word for word, he doesn't miss a beat. They're always the same. <laughs> but no <laughs> less remarkable. a fantastic memory. Oh, I told you, haven't I? Oh, yeah, but I love hearing it. <laughs> Your memory is incredible. That's what Mike Carlton, when he wrote the book, said to me. He said, you've got a bloody good memory. Because I remembered all the ships in the Java Sea battle. Yes, I remember reading that and you were naming them all. It's hard to remember the names of all those ships. Oh, that, that was a disaster. This is the Battle of the Java Sea, which is why you were all so exhausted when you got to Tanjung Priok yeah. and had to refuel and get ammunition and you'd already been at action stations for, I don't know, 24 hours yeah. by then. Yeah. And then you turn around, not enough fuel, not enough ammunition, sent off to the Sunda Strait where the coast is apparently clear and you encountered the Japanese Imperial Navy. Yeah. They had huge torpedoes, the Japs, much superior to what we had at that time. Mm. And you also didn't have the benefit of air cover, is that right? Oh, we had no air cover. They had the aircraft spotting for them. Yeah, it was a mess. Tell us about Heck, Captain Heck Waller. Heck Waller. Did you ever meet him? Yep, he's a good bloke, very good skipper. I think he was, he was killed, he ordered everybody off the bridge and he was killed by a shrap wound. Went down with his ship. One of the stories that we hear a lot of with HMAS Perth is about red lead. Did you ever meet that famous cat? Oh, the cat, yeah. Red lead. He got his name through. I put him in the paint locker because the vessel lieutenant at that time, he was removed later on. We had another first lieutenant. He didn't like the animal or the cats, so they put him in the paint locker. He upset a red tin of red lead. That's where he got his name. Really? Spilt the paint all over the floor, stepped in it, put his paw prints all over the <laughs> ship. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe I can ask you both how you think Perth should be remembered now. I think that at the moment, what they've done now, I think probably you had something to do with it too. In regards to keeping as a war memorial ship they're going to install radar i believe 24 7. you would know about that well i do know that they're taking steps to increase the supervision of the area and the area around the ship has been declared as indonesia's first maritime conservation zone and the local authorities in bunton province which is where sarang is are taking steps to develop a comprehensive management plan to manage the wreck and the marine life around it so that the communities who have lived with the wreck in their water for 79 years can continue to fish and make a living in the area and have their livelihoods, exploring tourism opportunities around the wreck, but also acting as that sort of first point of call if they see suspicious activity around the wreck and notifying authorities if they see, for example, one of these salvage barges working above yes, and the stealing it. Of that small island. 
Pulau Panjang. Yeah. yeah, because Perth is in Bunton Bay, as you know, and there's this island, Pulau Panjang, and a few other tiny little islands. So there are people around the wreck, and it's a very busy area. They have a ferry, don't they? Going across from Java, Marak, I think, yeah. over to Sumatra. Lots of fishermen, lot, there's shipping lanes, there are ferries to Sumatra, which you were talking about before. So there are people who can raise the alarm if they see activity above Perth or above Houston as well. How about you, George? How do you think Perth should be remembered? Well, it's a personal thing with me, very personal. Um, I wasn't in the Navy, I don't know much about the Navy side of it, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, it's very personal, my father there, that's his burial ground. And uh, it's just history. I think people should remember history, not forget it. And, George, you've made an amazing contribution to that by transcribing your father's diaries and making sure that future generations can read them. Mm. So we should thank you for that. Um, you know, two years of two-fingered typing is not, not easy, um, but you've produced something really, that really honours your father. The main reason I did it was for my family and the fact that when I had the books, they were 70 years old, 75 years old. The paper was getting very fine, thin, and um, obviously wasn't going to last. So I wanted to type it out so they could have a copy each, which I've done. Yeah, the main reason was for the family, so they'd have records of what, what happened and who he was. And um, if people want to read that diary, it is available online as well. Yeah, yeah it's on the web. Yeah, I gave it to the uh, Perth Association and they put it on the web so anybody can read it, yeah. yeah. And let me ask you, George, and I'll, I'll also ask you, Frank, have you been to the site where the Perth wreck lies? Yes. Oh, um, I've always wanted to go there. Uh, when I was younger, I had a family, couldn't afford it. And uh, when the family grew up, and I could afford to go there. I still wanted to, I've always wanted to go there. But the things you think about, you're going to go to this place that you can't speak the language. You're going to have to uh, find your way to get a boat somewhere. And then the boat's got to go out to where the Perth is. And how am I going to know where I'm at, where the Perth is? So it's very difficult. Later on in life, when the kids had sort of grown up, my family had grown up, I wanted to go there. But I didn't know how. And, uh, that's when I went to this um, exhibition at Darling Harbour, where Julie Bishop was. And when I was there, I spent a bit of time asking people, how can I get an introduction to somebody that could give me a bit of a hand when I get there? This is the exhibition at the Australian National Maritime Museum called Guardians of the Sunda Strait in 2017. Anyway, uh, when I come out of there with a couple of guys from the Perth Association, we're having a pub having a beer. What's that, the uh, captain of the Perth? Uh, oh, Ivan. Ivan, yeah. Ivan, Ivan Ingham. I, I'd met him before, Ivan, and now he was walking He's out a good of play. Oh, yeah, he was walking out of the exhibition, and I saw him walk in the street, and I was in the pub, and I thought, oh, I'll go and ask him as he might know. He suggested to me that I contact Julie Bishop and ask them. So from there, it was his suggestion, which I went ahead with, and I emailed Julie Bishop uh, saying that, my father's down the Perth, I want to go across there, I find it very hard. Can I get an introduction, somehow get an introduction to the ambassador, Australian ambassador in Java, Jakarta. And so that's where it sort of started and she put me on to one of the staffers. Uh, we commuted a few times by email. And then one day I'm at home mowing the lawn and I get a phone call and it's Matt Brown um, in October, I think it was. And he says, uh, Philip, you want to come to the Perth? And I said, I'd love to, yeah. He said, well, just so happens that we've got a ship going out there. Uh, would you like to come along? You bet. <laughs> so all the moons lined up. At that time, Matt had been trying to get this uh, Perth gravesite made into a, um, what do they call it? Or to protect it. Been tried for a couple of years, and he'd finally organised to get the Minister for Fisheries. The Indonesian Minister of Marine Affairs and Fisheries, who was Ibu Susi Pudiastuti. She was the one in charge of all that. He finally got her to go out on a ship for a 75th anniversary or something of the ship sinking. Everything lined up and I was just in the right time at the right place. And uh, that's why I went across to there and I went, actually went out on the ship. So that was the 76th anniversary. Yeah, is that right? And was that like a form of catharsis for you? Was it 
did you lay a wreath? Well, I got there. Um, and it was a very emotional trip. Um, when we went out there, I just stood at the bow of the ship and I imagined it late at night, midnight, I think, and then this, all these Japanese flutes are coming down. And they didn't have lights on, um, so they didn't know they was there at first. And then all of a sudden, hell broke out. I could just imagine how it happened. This flute coming down, and here they are stuck in, in the, where they were, and they got sunk. So, but being there, actually being there and imagining that, and it was so close to lean. It was so close to lean. That was that was that was fantastic to do that. But then that's where I broke up. They had to lay the roofs, and Matt had asked me to say a bit of a poem about that, which eventually did. But they brought out this big roof that I can remember with this roof, and I asked Matt. I said, "Can I have a couple of roses off that roof?" So I want to throw them in myself. We actually rang up Frank. On the day, Matt rung him up, and we were talking to him, you know. And uh, yeah, I I, yeah. I wasn't travelling too well at no, the time. No, no, but we actually, Matt rung up Frank on the day, and uh, when they threw the big roof in, then I had these two roses, one for my father and one for Frank's brother. It was oh, God. very emotional. And uh, then I got up and I, I was bubbling, and Frank said, "Do you want to talk to you? I'll do it. I'll do it." So I gave him a speech. I've got photos of it there. Well, it'll take out to say. And they told me later on the whole ship was bubbling. <laughs> Everyone had tears in their eyes, yeah. But that was the closest I've ever been to the father. I was 50 metres above him. It's the closest I've ever been. Mm. That was the emotional part about it. Even though I never had him, I'd always missed him. I'm breaking up now. Well. <laughs> it was very, very fantastic, it was. Well, that captain, Matt Brown, uh, who was the naval attaché in Jakarta at the time, really we have a lot to be thankful to him for. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, I think yeah. me being there actually too with the Minister for Fisheries, you know, yeah. I was talking to her and uh, she realised what it meant to people. Yeah. What is down there, yeah. I brought that home. I just tied the whole thing up. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I was asked the following year by um, Matt... You don't want to come back there again? Yes. The first time I went there, I was the centre of attention, you know, and everyone was looking at me. I said, this time, I don't want to be the centre of attention. I want some privacy. Mm-hmm. That time I had a little thing by myself about the attention. So, yeah, I've been there twice and uh, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. I didn't know you'd been twice, actually. I thought it was just the once, so. Did you ever go back, Frank? No. It would have been okay to go with George, but I wasn't going too well. I think it would have been a bit dangerous, you know, just getting money if something goes wrong and he's on the aeroplane and that, but I would have loved to have done And Frank, yeah. Matt said to me, if you can get him over here, we'll hire a boat and go out there. You know, we would have done it. But unfortunately, the way Frank's health was, we couldn't do it. It was a difficult part when I, when I came back. Couldn't tell them what happened to my brother. Mm. I didn't know. And there was, went everywhere. See, some of the fellas got ashore after we sunk, sunk. Some stayed in Java. Some went, we didn't know about, half a dozen went to Sumatra after we were sunk. We didn't know those fellas until we came back at a reunion. They were kept there by the Japs. And there were so many islands up there. The Navy sent a ship at the request of survivors and uh, next of kin to see if there were any happened to get ashore and live with the natives. But uh, when did they send that ship? Nineteen forty. 1940- that was about uh, forty-five. Forty-five. Yeah. Well, um, is there anything else you, you want to say? Yeah, I um, well, we went across the second time. I went to the bicycle camp and had a look and see what I was doing. And then now it's a five-star hotel. Is it really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. The Borobudur Hotel is built on it. Is that right? I believe some of the West Aussie fellas, thanks to Kid and that, uh, Trying through the Indonesian 
authorities to get a plaque in the foyer of the hotel, given a brief history of the Perth and Houston. When I was there, I, could, I looked around, we couldn't find it there. I asked that all the people there, but they, oh, we think there's one over there, but we couldn't find anything at the time. That would have been 2019, yeah. the year after, yeah. So the West Australian people are the people organising the memorial in yes. Fremantle? Is that the group you're talking about? And they're trying to get a plaque at the Borobudur Hotel as well? The thing that hasn't been mentioned, I'll try to say this without bothering too much. Now, Mum, back in those days, there was no internet or any of that electrical stuff, and she just knew he was gone. And she did hear that the Perth was sunk after a while. She got a letter from the department saying he's been missing in action, but she didn't know for years. Didn't know whether he was on an island. She said to me once, she said, we didn't know whether he was that severely damaged, he didn't want to come home to me. She just didn't know. And, uh, yeah, she went through hell. They all did, all the widows, the people who did that come back. People say, oh, you're a poor kid, but the women don't get thought of. She went through hell. On her deathbed, even though she'd been married and had two other children to her second husband, about a month before she died, she was in a nursing home, and I went up to see her. She was up at Lauren. And uh, she was talking to my father. So after another life with another man, she still had a death threat. She's still my father. So women suffered a lot and still are here. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, no, I'm really glad that you mentioned your mum and you shared that with us because that terrible not knowing for so long must have been so difficult with a new baby and terrible for those families not knowing until after the war was over in many cases if they'd survived or what they'd been through. So much trauma. Thank you so much for sharing with us, both of you. Um, yeah, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's not an easy topic. It's very emotional. I think people should know about it. Yeah. It was a terrible thing. Uh, well, whatever you're doing, Natalie, you're doing a good job regarding our ship. Thank you. That means so much to me. It's a very special ship. So thank you for letting me talk to you.